More than ever, it seems we are constantly bombarded, sometimes even drawn in, by the never-ending conflict and despair towards the future. As followers of Jesus, we press through the difficulties, because there is a promise and a hope for the future. But what about those who don't know that hope? How can we live out the promise of the coming kingdom in our present moment with those around us? So as Tony said, uh, I'm Rich Cavuto, and it's an honor to be here. I would say it's an honor, and at the same time, a little bit terrifying to be up here speaking to you. Uh, but I do want to just welcome everybody that's here, and especially the people that are here for the first time. We just think it's great that you uh, chose to spend part of your weekend with us here at Grace Church, and just want to do all we can to make you feel as warmly welcomed as we can. I also want to thank the folks who are uh, watching on the live stream, and uh, just thank you for also being a part of this service, and want to encourage you to sometime, if you haven't ever, or maybe recent, haven't recently been here in person, uh, we'd love to meet you and encourage you to come in and check out a a service in person. Well, as Tony said, also, I'm an elder of Grace Church, and I'm sure that there's lots of you who are wondering, what in the world is an elder of Grace Church, right? Well, for starters, it's not simply that I'm old, even though I am, so that's, <laughs> I guess that's part of it. But um, more than that, when, as we look at the New Testament and kind of look to see what the role of an elder is, uh, I would say in its simplest form, it's this. It's somebody that's devoted to loving and serving the Church of Jesus Christ, and when I think of how that plays out in my life, there's a few specific ways. So my, as uh, Tony said, my wife and I, Sonia, my wife Sonia and I, we, we have led a life group for a long time. We love, we love, love, love uh, being a part of a community like that, of community of believers that are uh, kind of doing life together, doing life together in the patterns that the New Testament lays out for us. Uh, I also teach in the equipping division, which, as it sounds, right, is a ministry that helps equip uh, the people of the church to serve to serve the church. Uh, I also serve in the steering team here at Medina East, and I'm a part of a, a, a group called the Administrative Board of Elders that needs to uh, needs to provide oversight for Grace Church. So that's how uh, that's how it kind of plays out for me when I think of my role as an elder. Uh, I actually think of it as tied to the values of our church. So at Grace Church, we say there are eight values. The first one of those, right at the top of the list of our values, is simply this, that we live to make Jesus make sense. We live to make Jesus make sense. And we explain that by saying that we are preoccupied with making any necessary sacrifice to make the story of Jesus clear to anyone who seeks after him. So, as simple as it sounds, you know, I see my role as an elder to make that as true as I possibly can make it, both in my own life and in the life of this church. So... That's why I do what I do as an elder, uh, really including being here today with you all. So, before I get rolling, I did want to introduce my family. So this is a picture of our gang, and uh, my wife, Sonia, my amazing wife, Sonia, is there in the center of the picture. Uh, by the way, we, Sonia and I celebrated our 40th wedding anniversary two weeks ago. I'm not there. Yep. So if you ever wonder what it was like, to, if, you, if, you, if you know her, you can say you know someone that had to, had to, had to endure the 40 years with me, right? <laughs> uh, Joey, my son Joey, and his wife Becky are on the right-hand side of that picture. And uh, our younger son, uh, William, is on the left-hand side. He's a college student. And our two little grandsons, Racco and Dean, are right there in the middle. And uh, 
I just got to do this. I just got to tell one little story about Dean. I just can't, 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 can't be here and not do that. So when Dean and Rocco come over to our house, they come busting through the door, and they make a beeline for this cupboard in their kitchen where their Oma, that's Sonia, Sonia's Oma, where Oma keeps that cupboard stocked with, uh, with those little lollipops called dum-dums. And Dean will rush right in there and grab one and want to have one. And if ever I tell him, Dean, you really can't have one of those right now. We're going to have dinner soon. He'll get all sad. And he kind of he hangs his head and he kind of droops his shoulder. And he says, oh, come on, Grandpa. <laughs> he just desperately wants one of those. And if I tell him, oh, Dean, you can have one, but, but wait, till, wait till after dinner. You can have one after dinner. He says, oh, it's going to take forever. <laughs> So, of course, I'd do what any self-respecting grandpa would do, right? I'd give him the candy. <laughs> and I figured Joey could deal with the consequences, right? Let his dad do that. <laughs> okay, so what does that have to do with anything? Absolutely nothing. I just can't see a picture of Dean and not, and not tell that story. So, as Tony said, we are uh, in a series in the, in the New Testament book of, of 1 Thessalonians. And uh, Steve, Pastor Steve walked us through the first two chapters over the last two weeks and he did an amazing job of describing how the Apostle Paul and, uh, and his co-workers, Timothy and Silas, uh, wrote to the people in Thessalonica to encourage them towards this idea of kingdom living in the present. So he, with this letter, he encouraged the, the people in Thessalonica. He also encourages us in the same way towards kingdom living in the present, the idea of living out Jesus' kingdom in our present age. Right? And uh, so you can check out those messages online if you want. There are on our app and podcast and YouTube and all those things. And so if you missed those, I'd encourage you to, to check those out online. Today we're going to be studying basically chapter 3. We're actually going to start with the very last paragraph of chapter 2 that starts in chapter 2, verse 17, and, uh, and we will read all of chapter 3. So uh, I'd love for you to turn to that passage in the Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, you can grab one from one of the, the seats in front of you, under one of the seats in front of you, and on, in those Bibles, you can turn to page uh, 957. We'll start reading there. If you uh, read the Bible on a device, you can navigate on your phone or tablet or whatever to 1 Thessalonians 2.17, and we'll start reading there. I just think it's super important that, uh, that everybody have a copy of God's Word in front of them today as, as we read this. So... Um, when, um, in the first week of the series, when Steve went over uh, the first chapter, he also walked us through a passage in Acts chapter 17 that basically tells the backstory of, this, of the start of the Thessalonian church as well as the backstory of this letter. Uh, so that passage explains how Paul was traveling in Greece and he stopped in the city of Thessalonica. He preached the gospel there, and as a result of his preaching, a church was formed. And uh, also, as a result of his preaching, there was some trouble that was stirred up. So, see, Paul preached the gospel in that city, right? He, pre- he preached that Jesus uh, is the Son of God who came to earth to reveal the full nature of, of who God is. He preached that, uh, that humanity is sinful and separated from God, and because of that, Jesus died on the cross as a sacrifice, and that three days later, he arose again as Lord of all, right? As Lord of all. And it was through that preaching that there were those in the city who came to trust in Jesus as Lord, and there were those in the city who were, who were threatened by the very fact that Paul preached this idea of Jesus being Lord. And as a result of that, they formed a mob and they rioted, right? And that riot ended up 
uh, causing all kinds of violence to be uh, targeted towards the, the new believers there. It also results in Paul having to escape the city. So he escaped from Thessalonica and traveled eventually to the city of Athens. There he wrote this letter that, uh, back to the people in Thessalonica to encourage them. And that gave us what we now have today as the, the book of uh, 1 Thessalonians in the New Testament. So I think understanding that context is, uh, is really important. And it actually helps, uh, as we read this passage, it helps this passage really come alive. So it's a little long. I'm going to read it here in a minute. And as I, as I read it, I want you to pay attention to a few things, right? You're going to see a, a moving, you're going to hear a moving description of Paul's love for the people in Thessalonica. You're going to see that for sure. You're going to, we're going to read about how difficult it was for Paul to be separated from them and that how he tried, tried hard to go back to see them, but those efforts were frustrated. Finally, we'll read about how he sent his coworker Timothy on this 400-mile journey from Athens back to Thessalonica to see the people there and to encourage them. And the report that he brought back, that Timothy brought back, overwhelmed Paul with joy when he heard about how things were going there. So I'm going to read this, and uh, you can follow along. We're going to be in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 17. So it says this. It says, But, brothers and sisters... When we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. We wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again. But Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of the Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and, and co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I, come, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we are encouraged about you because of your faith, for now we really live. holy ones. Okay, so I know that was a lot, <laughs> but uh, I, think, um, I think it's an amazing passage. And as I read and studied it in preparation for today, uh, there were 
there were a few things that really kind of overwhelmed me and really stood out to me. In fact, there were some questions that arose in my mind as I studied this passage. I wonder if maybe some of these same questions occurred to you as we read it. So these are the questions that arose in my mind as I read it. The first one is this. Is the love that these people shared, is it real, right? Or is this just some kind of sanitized description of what their relationship was actually like? Is this more like a first century Instagram post that's been photoshopped and filtered and tinted to make it look perfect? Is that what this, that, is that what this passage is? Or do they really love each other with the intensity that this language describes? That's the first one. Is the, is the love they shared real? The second one is this. If so, if it is real, well, how did it form? How did these bonds of deep friendship that allowed, allowed Paul to describe his relationship with these folks in the way he does in this passage, where did that love come from? What caused it to form? And then the third, and honestly, this is probably the one that I found most provocative, is, is this kind of love possible today? Can we actually experience the kind of loving relationship in a church community like Paul did with the people of Thessalonica in the first century? Uh, is it possible today? So we're going to turn to the passage and uh, see what the text has to say about answering these questions. Of course, the first one is, is it real? Is their love real? And so I think as we look at this passage, we can see um, all kinds of evidence of, of an incredibly close relationship with them. He starts out right there in, in, in verse 17 of chapter 2 with this term of endearment, right? Brothers and sisters, he calls them. He says, when we were orphaned by being separated. So he uses a term orphaned to describe how he was torn apart, right? If you think of, the, if you think of a child being orphaned or torn apart from his parents, uh, you, get, you can get the sense of emotion, right, and intensity that Paul's using to describe this. You know, his heart was broken over his kind of hasty and unexpected departure from the city of Thessalonica, and he describes, he describes that really in kind of sh- a shocking way when he uses this term orphaned. He was orphaned from, from them. He goes on to use terms like intense longing and every, make every effort to describe how desperately he wanted to be reconnected with his dear friends. Then in verse 18, he says again that he wanted to come to them. He says again. and 20, he, uh, he uses actually what are kind of some strange terms. He talks about that, these people being his hope, his joy, his crown, or his glory, right? He says, indeed, you are my, our glory and joy. And uh, I'll, actually, I'll actually go in a few minutes, dig into this verse a little bit and explain some of the background of it. But, but you can see, right, even without understanding all the details of that, you can see that uh, his description is... Um, just is soaked with emotion, right? Soaked with emotion and intensity. If we look at chapter three, verses in the first five verses of chapter, of chapter three, twice he says that uh, he, when he could stand it no longer, right? Verse one there, so when I could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves here in the city of Athens. We sent Timothy, right? He describes Timothy this way. He says he is our brother and coworker in God's service and spreading the gospel of Christ. So he sends Timothy on this 400-kilometer journey from the city of Athens back to Thessalonica to check in on the, on the people there. And if you think about that, in our day and age, 400 kilometers isn't that big a deal. In the first century, you know, so, so Paul's in the first century, right? He's in a foreign city on a missionary mission, basically. And the, the, the idea of sending his coworker 
on a 400-mile journey in that setting uh, really was an act of sacrifice. He was compromising his own safety as a foreigner in that city. He was compromising the purpose of his mission, the purpose of why he even bothered to go to, to Athens. And so I just think it's an, another example of, of the fact that they really did love each other and he was willing to sacrifice for these people. In verse 5, yeah, he says again, when I could stand it no longer, he says that I was afraid in some way that the tempter may have tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. If we look at verse 6 of chapter 3, uh, we hear about um, the report that Timothy brought back. So he's made the journey, he's returned back to Paul, and he's talking about, Paul's talking about the report that, that Timothy brought back. He said he brought back good news about your faith and love. And he, he goes on to say that you, you always have pleasant memories of us. That's what Timothy conveyed to him. You always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we long to see you. So what he's saying there is that, uh, you know, these people could have thought of Paul, could have memories of Paul that would have frustrated them, right? His preaching in the city resulted in, in, a, in, a, in a riot that resulted in all this persecution and violence that they faced. And they, they, didn't, they weren't worried about that. They remembered him with fondness for the fact that that what he preached was the truth about who Jesus was and that, that, that they were excited about that and they remembered him with fondness because of that. And then in verse 9 and 10, uh, he says this. He says, how can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you, right? So before God, uh, Paul finds joy in, in, in the, the fact that these people are trusting in, in Jesus Verse 10 says that night and day we prayed most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what's, what's lacking in your faith. So Paul, Paul has solid reasons to rejoice over these folks because they've remained faithful to Jesus. And again, just another example uh, kind of demonstrating the strong bond that they share. So I would say uh, I think it's pretty clear from the text as we, look at, as we look at those examples, I think it's pretty clear that it was more than just flowery platitudes, right, that he was, that he was writing. There was actually this deep bond of, of friendship that they shared. So that brings us to the second question. If their love was real, uh, how did it form? How did it come to be, right? Certainly, the events that surrounded the formation of the church in Thessalonica would have been a time that, that would have formed friendships and bonds of friendships. But I think it's worth kind of digging at that question and then thinking thinking that through a little bit more carefully. So here's some possible reasons. If we think about the question, is it real? Is their love real? Here's a couple possible reasons for, uh, if it's real, where did it come from, right? Here's a couple possible reasons for perhaps where it came from. One is that they learned from Paul's preaching, right? Certainly we know that, I think you've probably experienced this, there's a bond that forms between a pastor and the people that he shepherds, right? And I think that was probably true in this case. But when we think about phrases that are in chapters two and three, phrases like orphaned by being separated or when I could stand it no longer, I send Timothy or indeed you are my glory and my joy. It just seems like there's something deeper than just this one reason, something deeper, something unusual to explain the love they shared. The second, second possible reason would be this. How about longevity of relationship? So when, right, it takes, sometimes it takes a long time for close bonds of friendship to develop. And when I, think of, when I think about that, well, I would say, you know, what we know from the text of First Thessalonians that we read and also Acts chapter 17, uh, I, what we, the evidence we have is that they, they knew each other for a matter of months. So there really wasn't kind of this longevity of relationship. 
that would have allowed these deep bonds to form. You know, when I compare the time that they had to develop a relationship to, say, to a 40-year marriage, it's just obvious that, that they, just didn't have, uh, they just didn't have that kind of time to form these deep bonds of relationship. Here's the last one. What about enduring hardship together? I think we've probably, they definitely experienced hardship, right? Paul and these people definitely experienced hardship. They faced violence from the mob that opposed Paul uh, that resulted in all kinds of violence and resulted in Paul having to escape the city. And I think probably we've all experienced had relationships that have been deepened by, by enduring hardship together, right? When you go through a hard time with somebody, it just works to form deeper relationships. Say, take my wife, for example, right? She's had to endure a 40-year marriage with me. <laughs> so there's an example of enduring hardship. <laughs> okay, so they endured hardship together, but despite that fact, I think it's clear that, uh, that again, there's, just, there's another explanation that, ex- that has to explain uh, why they would describe their relationship together with that kind of intensity. So I think that verse 12 in chapter 3 actually points to the true source of the love that they shared. Paul says this in, chapter, in verse 12 of chapter 3, May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as it does for us. So here's the, here's the point. Paul's love for these people, I believe, is a direct outplay of the gospel at work in his own heart. It's an overflow Right? His love for them is an overflow of the love that Paul experienced with Jesus. Paul's love for these people flowed directly, flowed directly from Jesus' teaching about loving one another. Paul would have known that, that teaching. He would have understood that teaching. I believe he's modeling that idea of loving one another in this passage for the people in Thessalonica and for us as well. And so there's a lot of places that we could go in the New Testament and especially in the Gospels, to see where Jesus teaches about the idea of loving one another. John chapter 13 is one of those places. And in fact, John chapter 13 uh, is some of the final words that Jesus shared with his disciples before he went to the cross. He shared these words in this teaching the night before he died, the night before he was arrested and, uh, and went to the cross. So he was preparing his disciples for his death and his departure from them when he said these words. He said, a new commandment I give you, right? A new commandment I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So the disciples would have heard this phrase, right? A new commandment I give to you. They would have heard this phrase and, and, uh, and they would have heard Jesus saying that he's redefining pretty much everything they knew about and understood about God. In fact, when he said this, right, so remember that the disciples all grew up in a Jewish culture. They grew up learning and knowing and following the hundreds of Old Testament commandments. And when they think of connecting to God and following God, they would have seen it through the lens of following hundreds of Old Testament commandments. So when Jesus made this statement, a new commandment they give to you, I give to you, they would have heard him saying, I am redefining Right? And I am, I, am, I am rewriting all the commandments you ever heard. So what is he saying? He's saying this. A new commandment I give you, to love one another. And how is it that we're supposed to love? We're supposed to love like Jesus loves. That's exactly what he said. How did Jesus love? He loved by going to the cross. Right? He loved by giving himself as a sacrifice. And what will happen when we love like Jesus loves? 
he tells us that too. He says that everyone will know that you are my disciples when we love like Jesus loved. So why is that? Because, love, because that kind of love's not normal. It's just not normal. When it, you know, sacrificial love gets our attention, when one person intentionally sacrifices for others, it just screams to us. Sacrificial love is the love a parent has, for example, a love that a parent has for a child. And it screams, it shouts, I love you. It's selfless. And it shouts, I love you. And our hearts long for that kind of love, don't they? I believe the love that we read about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 is an example of Paul living out the kind of love that Jesus calls his, his followers to share with one another. I think we see this again in, uh, showing up in, in this verse, in cha- verses, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. I'll read that again. It says, For what is our hope and our, our joy or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. See, the the language that Paul's using here is a little strange, right? It's a little bit strange. It's a little bit confusing. You kind of ask yourself, what the heck is he saying? What could he possibly mean? Well, it turns out that Paul is borrowing language, this language and the imagery in it, from an Old Testament passage in the book of Isaiah. We don't have time to go there. I wish we kind of did to go and dig dig at that chapter or that passage, read it over and kind of dig at it. It's amazing. But the language he's using here echoes a passage in Isaiah chapter 62 where Isaiah describes how God's people, the people of Israel in the Old Testament, they're a crown, he says they're a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand. And this passage describes how the Lord delights in his people and finds joy in the people of his covenant love. And the Apostle Paul was an expert in the Old Testament. He would have known this passage in Isaiah and all, actually all of the Old Testament, he would have known that like the back of his hand. And Paul is borrowing that imagery from Isaiah chapter 62 when he says these words, right? When he describes his love for the people of, in Thessalonica. The love Paul had for these people wasn't just a result of the shared experience they had in the city of Thessalonica. It's an example of him living out the command that Jesus gave us to love one another as we've been loved. So the love Paul had for the believers in Thessalonica was prompted by the love that he experienced from Jesus. So when I go and try and answer that second question, uh, how did this love come to be? The answer is that it came from a heart that was, was transformed by the power of being deeply loved, by the power of being deeply loved by Jesus. The love Paul had for the people of Thessalonica was an overflow. His heart was overflowing from the love ex- that he had experienced with Jesus, a deep love that prompted him to sacrifice, and it's that kind of love that our hearts long for. So if you desire to love like that, if you desire to love like that, turn your hearts to Jesus and grow in an increased understanding of his love for you. See, when God looks at us, when God looks at us through the salvation that Jesus provides, he sees us, he sees you as a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, Right? He delights in you and finds joy in you, and he sees you as the object of his love. Okay, so hopefully that's a good answer to the the second question. So this brings us to the third question. Uh, Is this kind of love possible today? Can we actually experience the kind of love that we read about in 1 Thessalonians 3 in our context today, in in a church family today? So I think it is. I do. I think, I think it's possible. And I think to get there, I think like Paul, we have to be empowered by the gospel to love like Jesus loved. 
So we actually, we actually conducted a, a, little, uh, a little exercise here to, to have an idea, to, to actually show how this kind of love can and does exist in our, in our time and place today. So what we did is we, like Paul, like Paul sent Timothy out to the people in Thessalonica to, to get a report from them about their faith and love, we actually asked for a report of sorts from those at Medina East that we consider our co-workers in God's service and spreading the gospel, right? We asked, we asked our Timothy, so to say, to tell us about the faith and love of the people of Medina East. So we did that by going to these folks, by the life group leaders in Medina East, and we asked them to send us in a brief little email describing ways in which they've seen God at work in and through the people of their, of their group. And like Paul, just like Paul was overjoyed with, with, the, res- with the report he got back from, from uh, Timothy from his journey, I was overwhelmed too. We actually received these email reports, so to say, from, uh, from over a dozen of these life groups. And it was amazing to read how God is at work in the lives of so many people through, through biblical community. So we're going to uh, read these in a minute, but I just want to—I just want to say a couple words about these folks. So these these people are remarkable servants of Jesus, right? For for those of you that are in one of these life groups, I'm sure a bunch of you are. Uh, I'm sure you realize and see often how much these these folks, the leaders, kind of give themselves away week in week out for their group. And what's crazy to think about is, you know, as much as you know about maybe the own, your own life group that you're in, it's happening all over the place with all of, these, all of these groups. These people are giving themselves away. They really form the backbone of the Medina East campus, even though a lot of what they do goes kind of unnoticed by most of us. We don't even realize it's happening. And I just want to say how grateful I am to these people for the, serve, the way they serve, the way they serve Jesus, and the way they serve our church. I think it's just amazing. So as I said, I want to read a couple of these, these responses that we got, and i uh, just love to share these with you. So here's one uh, pretty typical example. So this came from one of our life group leaders. Again, an email uh, that I asked for uh, just in, in preparation for this, this message. So here's what this life group leader says. He says, our group has demonstrated an eagerness to live out the call to bear one another's burdens in Galatians 6 and to serve one another in serve one another humbly in love in Galatians 5. A number of our members have faced certain challenges and experienced victory over certain sins over the course of their lives. Some of these same challenges and sins are now cropping up in the lives of others. He goes on. We have seen these men and women pour into the next generation, offering understanding, compassion, and practical assistance in the face of the challenges and struggles that that have come up in their lives of their fellow life group members. While we are all far from perfect, the Holy Spirit is forging new bonds of unconditional friendship and support out of the stories of hurt, uh, failure, and regret. Praise God, he said. And I would say, praise God indeed, right? So this life group leader went on to say uh, that his group, he talked a little bit about the makeup of his group being people and families from kind of all ages and stages, and he just described how the diversity of that, the makeup of that group really works to strengthen it. But you can see in this description, right? You can see in this description kind of the Jesus-empowered love that Paul uh, described, that Paul had for the people of Thessalonica. It's at work. That very same kind of love is at work in, in, our, in our place and time. And I think that's pretty cool. Here's another one. 
this life group later uh, said this. It said, when I stopped to think about this, this idea of God at work and people, it's a bit overwhelming to put into words what I've seen God do through the people of my life group. There are so many people that have grown in their relationship with Jesus, which in turn has prompted them to want to serve him. He goes on and says, one person that comes to mind is a man who walked into life group as a man broken with no relationship with Jesus. He told me on his first night that he was missing something in his life, but did not know what. He figured out that it was Jesus he was missing. Currently, his love and praise for Jesus is evident in everything he does. From his occupation to his volunteer work at Medina East, it's been amazing to see this transformation from broken to having a truly vibrant fellowship with Jesus and the body of Christ. So again, so this response points out how one specific individual right, was really transformed by being part of a, a Jesus community. And so you can see, again, uh, just this description of the power of community at work in the lives of people. Okay, so I have one more of these that I want to share. And uh, I made the first two of these anonymous intentionally. In fact, we've, we've kept these anonymous, anonymous except for one case. So the third example I have is actually from Rick and Sarah Mikett. Rick sent in a, a, little, a little email describing his group, the work of God in his group. And in it, he actually mentions uh, the tragic loss that the Balaka family faced um, with the loss of their son, Andy. You may, probably most of you remember that. That was something most of our community was aware of uh, that happened back in the spring. So any attempt at keeping that anonymous just seemed pointless. So I called the Mikets and I called the Balakas and I asked them if, for their permission uh, to share this little report with you all today. And they, they, were, they were more than willing. In fact, they were enthusiastic about me doing that. So we're going to look at what Rick what Rick Mike had sent in. So Rick wrote this. He said, probably the instance that I will never forget is how God worked through our group in the response to the Balaka family and the loss of Andy. Uh, The amount of love, prayer, and support that came out was amazing. The body of Christ came together at a very trying time and showed the community true Christian family and love. What continues to bring many of us closer is seeing how the Balaka family continues to lean in more and more to God and their faith while going through this great loss. So the Micah group came around the Balaka family at a time of unimaginable tragedy. And Jesus provides his body for just those times, right? He provides each other for those times. When all this happened, I had the opportunity to kind of witness uh, the Micah group as they came around the Balka, Balka family, and it was stunning. They spent countless hours with the Balkas, uh, just hanging around with them, crying with them, doing things around the house, running errands, preparing food, all those things, just whatever. The Micahs in their group are an incredible example of this idea that, of Jesus' command, right? To love each other as he has loved us. And for those of us that had a chance to witness it, the idea that everyone will know that you are my followers if you love one another that way, well, that was overwhelmingly displayed in this experience. And that kind of love is not normal, is it? It's not normal, but our hearts long for it. So know that it's only possible if it's empowered by the gospel, empowered by the truth that Jesus loves, loves you enough to sacrifice his love for you, and, is, and in grateful response to that love, you're able to love others in the same way. 
So when I talked with Brent and Deb about sharing this today, they both very much encouraged me to, to do that. They just said, they explained how this experience for them personally, and even for their extended family and the people that are close to them, for them to kind of see the body of Christ, see their church family come around them, the way they did at that time was just absolutely incredible. And it overwhelmed all of them. And so I just think this statement that Jesus says in John 13, that, that everyone will, will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another, it's just true. It's just true. And I think this whole experience is an incredible example of it. So as I said, there are lots and lots of these, uh, these reports that came in, way too many for us to go and read through today. Uh, but there was so powerful to read them. We just decided that we were going to make them available to anyone who wants to look them over. If they're on the website, you can get to it through. They're on the Medina East website. You can get to them through this QR code if you'd like. We've kept them anonymous, so we took out all the personal names. Uh, but they're there, and you can read them and see uh, how in an amazing way God is at work in the lives of so many people through the biblical community. So I'm going to invite the band to come up and... Uh, as I do that, I want to make this one last point. So the loving relationship that Paul shared with the Thessalonians was real, and it was powerful. And the, it was empowered by Jesus' love for Paul. He was living out what he learned from Jesus. It's also true that it can and does exist in our time today. It's available to us through his body, through the body of Christ. And if you're not connected to a biblical community, I, just, I, wonder, I wonder if your heart has longed for the kind of love that we read about in 1 Thessalonians 3. If it has, then I would encourage you to find a biblical community to get connected to. In Medina East, we feel like we get behind, we most fully get behind life groups that form a community because as we look at the New Testament, we just feel like that's the form of community that uh, is most, most fully fills out what we read about in the New Testament. But hey, if life groups don't work for you, find another group. Find a way to get connected to people. To, to, to Jesus' body. Uh, you just won't experience all that God has for you unless, unless you're connected to his body. So I'm going to close uh, today by uh, praying for you all in much the same way that Paul prayed for the people in Thessalonica. So this, these three verses are the closing verses of chapter 3 that we read together. And uh, Paul's prayer is this. It says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus, clear the way for us to come to you. Make the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus Christ comes with his holy ones. So why don't we just, why don't we pray together? So, Lord, we, we do come before you, and just like Paul prayed, um, I, pray, I pray the same prayer. I pray that uh, just like Paul prayed for you to clear the way, for him to connect with his brothers and sisters in Thessalonica, I pray that you would clear the way in our lives for us to connect deeply with, with our brothers and sisters. As Paul prayed uh, for the people in Thessalonica, for their love to increase and overflow, I pray that we would understand and know your love for us so fully that that love flows, overflows out of our hearts into the hearts of the people around us. And Father, like Paul prayed, 
for, for the people to be encouraged and to hold on until the return of Jesus. I pray that in the face of all the difficulties of life that we face, that we would, we would remain hopeful in the certain return of Jesus and that we would stay faithful to, to him and faithful to his mission. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.